Last week, we ended up looking at the phenomenon Pentecost, the tongue speaking and all that. And you remember it it was um, left off with the question of what does this mean? And then other people saying, oh, they're just drunk. Um, Peter immediately preaches what is the first New Covenant evangelistic sermon after that to help this bewildered crowd understand what just happened. And um, you, you may not know, but we'll, we'll, you, hopefully after this you will know just how category-shaping and changing what just happened was. Let me help illustrate it like this. Uh, my, my oldest son, when he was young and just starting to uh, learn how to draw... Um, I remember him handing me a picture and doing what, you know, kids do to parents, which is always dangerous. You know, the, hey, do you know what this is? And the parent has to, like, quickly decipher through something and give him an answer that you hope is good. Well, he, he handed me one, and he said, hey, Dad, who's this? And I looked at it, and um, it was, I could tell that it was a, it was a little boy with uh, curly hair and green eyes and a UK T-shirt on. And, I, and my son, curly hair, green eyes big fan of UK. So I said, well, that's you, Holt. He said, no, it's not. I said, yeah, it is. It looks just like you. And he said, dad, you can't tell who this is. I said, I think it's you. He said, dad, come on. That's Jesus. (laughs) I said, that's Jesus. He said, yeah, look, he's walking on water. And to his credit, there's a little blue line underneath the, (laughs) I said, Holt, do you think that Jesus has curly hair and green eyes and cheers for UK? And he said, well, I like to think he does. <laughs> if that's not a picture into the heart of mankind, I don't know what is. The way it was created is God created man in his own image. After the fall, it's been man creating God in his own image. And the way that this is manifested most of all, this human tendency that we all have to fashion God in our own image is the temptation toward tribalism, meaning this. What do people who tend to fashion God, make God in their own image do? Well, we gather with people like us and people who understand our culture our ways, our preferences. And then we kind of get into this tribalism group thing where we think God's cultures, God's ways, God's preferences are like us. Or to put it differently, we begin down this road that says to become a Christian is to become like us. That tendency is exactly where the crowd in Pentecost is this day. We have much in common with the Jewish crowd here. They were a deeply ingrained tribal people who believed, literally believed, to be saved was to be like them. But Pentecost, as we saw last week, shattered their tribalism. As everyone started hearing in their own native tongue and culture. And today, we're going to watch Peter try to explain to this crowd what just happened. And he's going to use the prophecy of Joel to do that. 
I'm dividing it into two parts. We're going to look at the scandal of everyone and then the scandal of one. That'll make sense when we get into it. But first thing that happens is this challenge to the Jewish crowd of this idea of everyone. Verse 14. By the way, I noticed this in the first service. I think I used a different version than the ESV to write my sermon this week. I was using Abby's Bible while she's out of town. And um, she grabbed mine. I had hers. And she has an NIV. And I unwittingly wrote it. So for you NIV users, this is for you this week. Uh, So this is NIV, but there's not much translation differences here than what was read in the ESV. All right. So 14. Peter stood up and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Now listen to how he does this. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. What I want us to notice is how emphatic Peter is here. He's saying, everyone listen to me. Listen very carefully to what I'm about to tell you. And the reason why he has to start his sermon that way with such emphatic, give me your attention, is because his explanation of what just took place quite literally is inconceivable in the minds of the hearers. That is to say, he is about to preach a sermon to an audience that has no category for the sermon he is about to preach. Let me do my best to position us to enter into this sermon the way the original audience would have entered into this sermon. To understand the persistent dilemma of Acts and much of the letters of the New Testament, you have to understand the significance of the Jewish identity. This is huge to the story. Up until this point in the story, to be saved was to be Jewish. That didn't mean that non-Jews could not be saved. It meant that to be saved, they had to become Jewish in every way. It was a long conversion process full of rituals and rites and ceremonies and perhaps most paramount was the education and learning of the Hebrew language that they might learn to recite and memorize the Torah, the Jewish law that is written in their sacred Hebrew language. So to be saved was to be Jewish in every way, culture, customs, practices, linguistics. But what was so interesting about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is that he didn't fit that mold of Judaism. He certainly didn't reject his Jewish identity. In fact, he claimed to be the very fulfillment of the Jewish identity. But that fulfillment shattered the prevailing Jewish identity. Meaning this, he was Jewish, but he didn't act like it in their eyes. He fellowshiped with the sinful and the unclean. He broke their customs, their cultural expectations, their rules, their regulations. He broke them all. And most of all, he took on the Jewish establishment. In a conversation with one of the most established leaders of the day, a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and a respected Pharisee, Jesus says explicitly what was unthinkable to the Jewish identity. It's it's interesting because this verse has become such a cultural verse for us, but in reality, it was so scandalous to their culture in the day. This is what he said to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. For God so loved the world, not Israel, 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, not Jews, whosoever believes upon him will not be condemned, but will have everlasting life, will be saved. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jews thought that is exactly what the Messiah was going to do. Condemn the world, save Israel. But that the world through him, not through becoming Jewish, not through Jewish ritual, but through him might be saved. God loves the world, not just Israel. God wants to save the world, not just Israel. And God offers his salvation to the world through Jesus, not through becoming Jewish and obeying Jewish laws and practices. That revelation, I'm telling you right now, if you read the New Testament, that revelation is the stumbling block to the New Testament. It's what they're always struggling to get through. They had to have an entire council meeting in Acts 15 to get over this. That you didn't have to become Jewish in order to be saved. God's salvation offered to the world through a Jesus identity instead of a Jewish identity. Which Paul later in his letters fleshes out as saying, actually a Jesus identity is a Jewish identity. He is the true Israelite. And therefore through him we become sons and daughters of Abraham and inheritors of the promise. But that's for another time. But here's the point. It should never have been a stumbling block. Because from the very beginning, God told Israel that was the plan. Genesis 12, the beginning of Israel through Abraham. I will bless you. I will, I will care for you. I will defend you. I will save you so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. In Jesus, the fulfillment of Abrahamic promise, that Genesis 12 promise came to pass. All the nations of the earth will be blessed, will be saved through Jesus. Now Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost is that the reality of whosoever believes explodes upon Israel. Explodes upon the Jewish identity. Remember last week, the word of God is proclaimed and everyone hears it not in Hebrew, the sacred, holy language, but in their native And the phenomenon ends with some saying, what is this? And others saying, they're drunk. And then Peter stands up before a crowd of bewildered Jews to explain what just happened to their now shattered religious identity. He says, Jews, listen to me. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully. And the way he crafts his explanation is by turning to the prophet Joel, who predicted that this day would come. Israel loved Joel chapter 2. You can go read this afternoon. It's a beautiful chapter. Famous chapter. You'll recognize some of it. But Israel loved Joel chapter 2 because the the prophet promised the day that Israel was pining after, the day of their vindication, the day of their salvation, the day of their redemption, the day of heaven on earth for the Jews. I'll read some of it. It's their favorite part. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given early rain for your vindication. 
The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. Boy, did Israel love that promise. But what Peter does homiletically here is brilliant. I had never noticed this until this week. They loved that part of Joel's prophecy. The problem is that the prophecy doesn't end there. There is a second half to it that is the neglected second part that you you heard in our Old Testament reading. Right after he talks about their restoration and their their vats being full of wine and and full of grain and, and, and that my people shall never be put to shame, literally right after Joel promises what's in our passage and Peter uses. Let's watch him do it. Look at verse 15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It's a good preaching technique there. Start a little humor. Then he gets into it. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Their ears would peek up and they would think, oh, he's going there. Instead, he goes in the second half. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will see dreams. These are all prophecy, dreams, visions. This is all spirit-anointed association within Israel of old, that the spirit would come and anoint and offer these moments of this. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. The part about Israel's salvation includes this strange word that in that day of your salvation, I will pour out my spirit on all people. All flesh, literally, is the promise in Hebrew. God's spirit was associated not just with the Jewish people, but with the heroes of the Jewish people. Moses, David, these spirit-filled, anointed leaders. And the promise wasn't just that, oh, in the new covenant, you Jews, you get the spirit that Father Abraham had, that Moses had, that David had. You get to have that. No, no, no. Everyone gets to have that. All flesh. What was once available not only to Israel, but to the leaders of Israel is now available to all of us. And I mean all of us. Scandalous sons, daughters, young men, old men, even servants, even slaves, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit on everyone. That's what Israel missed. When the day of salvation comes, it will come to everyone. That everyone will be enfolded into the promise. Well, technically not everyone. You see, Israel had to be confronted with the scandal of everyone. And in many ways, we, too, we do too, particularly we who are religious. And I'm going to talk about that when we get to application. This is a struggle for us too. But for the world we inhabit, unlike the Jewish world of the first century, the scandal is not the idea of everyone. We love that. The scandal in our day, in our secular world as we've been talking about, is the scandal of one. Let's look at that. To understand verses 19 and 20, we need to understand the, mom, the, the meaning of last days. Look again that he, he, he opens his prophecy in, in, in verse 17 with, in the last days, God says. Now, when you view the 
arc of redemptive story, it unfolds in phases. We talked about this in the first sermon I preached on Pentecost. You have the older covenants, uh, the older covenant, which is developed in subsequent stages, all of which lead up to Jesus and this new covenant that we talked about. But what's unique about the new covenant is there's nothing left to be done. There's no more stages. All that it needed to be accomplished has been accomplished. Jesus died, resurrected, ascended, all of that, all that was required for salvation is complete. Therefore, the new covenant in the scriptures is spoken of as the last days. So when you see that, and it's all over the New Testament, the last days, they're talking about this unique era of of redemptive history. We don't know how many last days there are, but we do know we are in the last days. And the last days that was introduced at the beginning of Joel's prophecy will give way to one day that is the conclusion of Joel's prophecy. Okay? Now, let's look at 19. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. All of that is common, what we call apocalyptic language and imagery associated with the end of the last days. The last days are going to come to an end with this day of the Lord, and it's saying you're going to have all this. Now, rather than an overly kind of literalistic interpretation like so many do with this, like, you know, on the rare occasions where the, uh, the moon is red in the sky and, and we think maybe that means Jesus is coming back because we've got a blood moon or something like that, this, that, this is missing the point of apocalyptic imagery. It, it's, it's this... It is meant to demonstrate that when this happens, there will be a complete disruption and upending of the world as we know it. Unlike the first coming of Jesus, which was meek, mild, and hidden in the darkness of night, noticed only by a handful, the second coming of Jesus will be a wild and spectacular global event that nobody will miss. So when it comes to stuff like this, don't worry about trying to figure it out like so many people do, because that's actually the opposite of the imagery's meaning. The point of the apocalyptic imagery is you don't have to figure it out because it will be unmistakable to all the world. Even those who deny God, they will have to admit there will literally be nowhere to hide from this day which Dole describes as the great and glorious day of our Lord. And the greater point of the prophecy that the prophecy is making here is that the message to everyone is going to end with a message about one. What what will divide everyone on the last day of the last days? It is very simple. Where do you stand with the one? So the beginning of Joel's prophecy, which finds its fulfillment in Pentecost is the first of the last days. Pentecost is the first of the last days, and that's the beginning of Joel's prophecy. And that message is about everyone. But at the end of Joel's prophecy, which finds its fulfillment in the last day of the last day, this day of the Lord, this finds fulfillment in the one. So it isn't just everyone, is what I'm trying to say. It's everyone who calls on the one. 
which is how the prophecy reaches its climactic conclusion. You know this verse very well. And it shall come to pass, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Joel's prophecy explaining Pentecost and introducing the last days simultaneously challenges our tribalism and our universalism, which is what what makes this so applicable to our day because we struggle with both of those deeply. Here, let me explain. Um, I want to spend some time in application with both of those points, the challenge of everyone and the challenge of one. And I I want to flesh that out practically, okay? First, let's talk about the challenge of everyone. This is going to challenge... I'm guessing, if I, if I were to predict here, this is going to challenge the religious among us, meaning not, not religious in a bad way, just the devout among us. I know that your identity is not first century Judaism, but that doesn't mean that we can't relate to their struggle here. You do have a religious identity, right? And chances are, if... You are at TCPC this morning. That identity is a conservative, evangelical, American Christianity identity. First century Jews struggled with this. You have to become Jewish to be saved. And Peter is using Joel to say, actually, they don't. They need only to call upon the name of the Messiah to be saved. And so we must humbly ask ourselves whether deep down we believe one must become a conservative, evangelical, American Christian to be saved. Now, do not so quickly dismiss that question as ludicrous. I know theologically you know that that's ludicrous. But if you talk to an outsider coming into our culture, they will tell you they feel that pressure. The one I can use publicly, I've talked to many about it, but the one I can use publicly because she agreed to share her story and talk about it at our conference is Caroline White, who's on staff with RUF. Um, and Caroline grew up in a, um, she grew up in a um, very, very uh, progressive home, very liberal home, and held on to that, the, um, those um, those convictions all the way into her conversion to Jesus and, and through kind of a strange providential story somehow ended up in the PCA on staff of the PCA campus ministry and has changed her views a lot. She really has. But she would still say that she still holds a lot of these convictions. And when she, at, at, the, um, at the conference, I want to let her speak. This is what she said she felt like coming into our world. She felt like, she said, I had to be cleansed of democratic convictions before I was truly acceptable. She said, in essence, two conversions were necessary. Conversion to Jesus and then conversion to the Republican Party. That's telling. It's painful. The greatest failure, a 20th century missions model, and there's books and research being done about this I mean, there's, there's more PhDs being written about this right now than, than we can count. 
The failure of 20th century missions model is that American missionaries went all over the world with this patronizing air of superiority to supposedly convert the nations to Jesus. But if you talk to indigenous Christians, they would say it was to Americanize the world. That is to say, you had to become like an evangelical American Christian to be saved. So, how about you? Is this tribalism of the gospel a struggle for you? I can tell you how you will know that. The answer to that is found in the test of your love toward those who are different than you. And here's why I can say that. The belief that one must take on your identity to be saved is always manifested in a scornfulness towards those not like you. That's what happened with Jews. Tribalism always ends in self-righteousness. They look down upon others as inferior for not being like them rather than loving others because they recognize they are no better than them. So test your heart. If you want to know whether this tribalism thing is an issue for you, test your heart toward those not like you. Because I brought it up, those with a different political persuasion. I'm telling you right now, I'm in our culture. I mean, we hate each other. We'll start there. But your heart towards those of different political persuasion, the LGBT community, the secular progressive community, the Muslim community, the poor community, the migrant community, What the Presbyterian USA community? Here's the question. Do you love them? And by love, what I mean by that is love. Do you love them? Or when you search your heart, do you find a bitterness, an anger, a resentment? Whatever. The problem is that Pentecost gives you no choice. Everyone actually means everyone. Everyone means there is no difference between anyone, all sinners, all equally flawed, all equally in need of one. Which brings us to the second challenge, the challenge of one. (laughs) This one will probably be a challenge for you if um, you would not consider yourself very religious, Um, if you would maybe identify as um, the the growing demographic of of non-religious or, or, you know, you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, or it, it, it will apply to you probably if perhaps you're a younger Christian um, who grew up within the society that we've been talking about in our Sunday school class, who grew up within this kind of tolerant, um, uh, postmodern, uh, post-truth society of ours. This, this will be a challenge for you. You probably loved the first challenge, didn't you? And you really like me saying it from a PCA pulpit. But... Let me remind you that when the Bible says everyone, it's not blanket everyone universalism. We cannot abandon the greatest stumbling block of our faith, the exclusivity of one name, and that name is Jesus. Perhaps you laughed at my son drawing Jesus as a curly-headed, green-eyed UK fan, but you do realize Jesus is someone He is a reality, and he is an exclusive reality. He may not look like my son, but he looks like someone. And every knee has to bow to him. Perhaps you take delight in reminding American evangelicalism that despite our artwork, Jesus was a dark-skinned Palestinian man that's so 
I hear that all the time now. We get to even like redo our artwork. He's not a blue-eyed Anglo. He's a dark-skinned Palestinian man. Fair enough. Good correction. I agree. But that dark-skinned Palestinian man is Lord and there is no other. Are you okay with that? Friends, our belief is what it is. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. The great and glorious day of our Lord will be a day of exclusive truth. And Jesus is the dividing line. No loopholes, millennials. No loopholes. No somehow this is all going to work out for everyone in the end. Only exclusively do you call upon the name of Jesus or not. If so, you shall be saved. If not, you shall be condemned. Period. End of the last days. Now, if you deny this and think this is all crazy, then I just want to point out to you that you have your one. Like, like in other words, what I'm trying to say here is, talk like that that I just did might disturb you, perhaps even offend you, and I understand that. I, I, I risk that. But let me just say that I'm just being very upfront and honest with you about our exclusive claim. The idea that exclusivity can be avoided is nonsensical. I have my one name. But you have your one something. Even if that something is nothing. And eventually we're going to find out whose one truth is truly true. So if you deny, if you, if you deny this and think this guy is crazy then you will have your day to find out. Perhaps you're right, and I'm wrong. If you subscribe to a different religion and deny the name of Jesus, you will have your day when perhaps you're right, and I am wrong. If you pride yourself as tolerant of all faiths and all beliefs and subscribe to kind of this universalism where everything somehow is going to work out and everyone will work out in the end and all that, you will have your day and perhaps you're right and I'm wrong. But the point I'm trying to make is that the notion of one might offend you, but you have your one too. So let's just dispel the naive narrative of our time and admit exclusivity is inevitable and just have the conversation. And I'll tell you where I am. I'm all in on Jesus. And as we shall see in our next sermon, Peter defends that by saying, the one name that I'm all in on is risen from the dead. So I've got that going for me, which helps. Helps me sleep. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week. Here we are. We've got two challenges before us this morning. The challenge of everyone, the challenge of one. Here's my application. Send you forth. Chances are, when I fleshed out those two points practically, chances are, I like to say, one of them had you amening and one of them had you squirming. Your application is the one that had you squirming. If you were amening one of those points, great, you got it, thanks. One of them made you squirm. The one that made you squirm is your application. Wrestle with its challenge. Repent where you need to repent and embrace the call of Pentecost. Everyone who calls upon the name of 
the Lord shall be saved. Let me pray. Our Father, we pray that you would convict us, but not leave us there in conviction, but overwhelm us with your mercy and renew us for repentance and feed us by this table. Um, Lord, this is a demonstration of everything I just preached. This is the gospel we love to feed our souls. And so I pray that you would bless it, feed us, and send us forth with that as our banner. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We ask your blessing on this meal in Jesus' name. Amen.